0: Welcome to this episode
1: of The Professional,
0: a podcast series brought to you by ProfMed, a medical aid that understands that the professional of tomorrow is ever-changing. For some kids growing up in the 80s, those lucky enough to have this new thing called a computer, this sound was life. It's a computer game called Digger, and it was played on MS-DOS. Back when discs were floppy, screens were anything but flat, and even the slickest CPU was as big as a jumbo cereal box. So in the game, you're this happy-looking little digger truck cruising around in an underground maze, collecting emeralds and gold, being chased by monsters called nobbins. As long as you escape them, you're good. But if they catch you... Now, as you picture a computer-obsessed kid from the 1980s playing this game, who springs to mind? Probably a young boy, right? And if this kid is playing digger in South Africa during Apartheid, you're probably thinking he's white, right? In Palesa Sibeko's case, wrong. (gasps) Completely wrong.
1: I grew up in a household where my father was an engineer, so he had access to lots of uh, technological um, things such, you know, hardware such as the personal computer. And then at some stage, we ended up uh, having a gaming console in the house. So um, I was very much interested in what was around me. And that was what was around me, playing games from an early age, seeing my father work on the computer and so forth. So I think my interest just grew from there.
0: But, I mean, at an era where girls were encouraged to be playing with dolls, what made you think... Uh, quite apart from your dad's influence that, hey, I'm going to pick up a console and start playing. And what was that first console?
1: Um, I actually started playing on PC and South Africa, I think it wasn't that easy to get some of the early consoles and... Because uh, I have two brothers, and at some stage we also lived with my other cousin, all males, and the influence was quite strong, I think, for me to do what they were doing rather than what the other girls in my neighbourhood were doing.
0: And this young girl, sitting with her face as close as she can get it to her dad's boxy computer screen, winning a digger, she'll go to high school in a free South Africa. She'll have the chance to pursue all the stuff she's most interested in, technology, technology, music, gaming, and communication. Eventually, she'll end up winning at life. And she'll help grow a whole new generation of girls to join her on a quest to transform the world of tech. I'm Bongani Bingwa, and this is The Professional, a podcast from ProfMed about how the world of work is changing in surprising ways. In this episode, we speak to someone who's already perfectly at home in this strange new landscape. Someone who's comfortable laying down the tracks as the train's already moving or jumping off a cliff and building a parachute on the way down. Pales Sibeko is part of a new kind of workforce that's developing to meet the needs of our changing world. She's a trailblazing tech innovator, a highly successful woman in a male-dominated industry who wants to turn HR on its head and someone who believes that small changes can make the world of difference.
1: Uh, when I was growing up, uh, because of the influences that I had around me, I wanted to be a scientist, I wanted to be a musician and a writer. And for me, that seemed perfectly normal that I could be all those things.
0: These days, balis 's drive to work in a bunch of apparently unconnected fields doesn't seem all that strange. But back in the 80s and 90s, she got a lot of pushback. I would
1: say that's actually quite typical now uh, of some of the younger people who are coming into the work world. But at the time, for me, I did receive some criticism. I think society just wasn't um, as open to people who were doing very desperate things and couldn't really create a, a coherent narrative as to what it is that you were
0: doing. Fresh out of high school, Balisa didn't exactly follow her passion. She signed up for a BSc degree in what's now called Molecular Cell Biology at Witz University. But then, after completing her degree, she made this crazy jump from biosciences to base. Contemporary base studies, to be specific.
1: Coming from the science world, going into the arts was very interesting for me, in that uh, all of a sudden it was more about self-expression, which is very scary. Now I actually have to go and tell people. <laughs> or at least, um, you know, express myself in a way that uh, makes me quite vulnerable uh, to others. So uh, I've learned lots of lessons uh, making that transition. And I think it's part of the reason... Uh, why I've been able to, uh, after that, combine um, desperate ideas and create value out of those things.
0: So what exactly does someone with a BSc and a bass music qualification do? For Pallisa, the answer was something else entirely. She ended up working for South Africa's first social media company, Cerebra, in 2007, a year before Facebook and Twitter went mainstream.
1: Oh my goodness! Uh, this was probably one of the highlights of my career so far. Is that here we are as a startup, we we're essentially a startup at the time. We're creating this thing as we're going along. Um, it's very new to to South Africa. Brands are trying to figure out how they can take advantage of it, and. Um, With this team, really fantastic uh, group of people who are constantly learning and constantly sharing, which was uh, the most fun part for me is just uh, the satisfaction of just having new knowledge every day and being able to test it in a real environment. And we were creating this really fantastic value for for our clients and for their customers at the same time.
0: In other words, Palisa was into social media before it was cool, it's very exciting. That's the number one thing. But it's also unnerving
1: because you do not know how an earth is going to be received and it could fall flat. Um, but I think uh, as human beings, we have an innate curiosity and we were fulfilled in that manner that you were able to be curious about something, be able to. Implement uh, ideas that we had about it and get some sort of result. And, um, and I think that for me was quite satisfying.
0: What were some of the pushbacks to social media by brands who at the time didn't understand how big this thing was going to go?
1: Well, you can imagine that they're already thinking about how they are perceived by people because now they're no longer owning their message which they could do through PR in the past, which they could do through other ways of influencing, but from a centralized perspective. Now it's decentralized. Anybody can say anything about your brand anyway. And you can no longer control that narrative. So I I think that was probably some of the hesitance that they had to it but of course uh, some of the more progressive uh, uh brands that we worked with they knew that they had to be part of that space and to genuinely have conversations and i believe in, in social media in the early days it was there were conversations and be able to learn from these people on how uh they are interacting with the, with the services and the products that they were producing and be able to give better value as a result
0: part of your job was to obviously hold the hands of these brands through uh, the adoption and explosion of social media. You could see where this thing was going, which is why you were involved. But what surprised you?
1: Hmm. Oh, an interesting case is I I worked on mobile quite a lot as well, including on Mixit. What was very surprising to me was how some people uh, on those platforms were, getting quite personal about their lives Uh, so you're uh, say a a community designer or community manager and then you have all these people who are dumping all their most personal um, stories on you what is it about the band that made it feel like it was safe enough for you to go and share some of the most intimate details of what you're going through that for me is still surprising uh, to this day because that's not something that I would do
0: As Balisa mentions, something that was very cool back then was Mixit. Remember that? The Free Instant Messaging Service was born in Stellenbosch in 2005, two years before the word iPhone even existed and long before smartphones became a thing. At the time,
1: we had a sister company called Brandish, and that was more mobile focused. So um, at Brandish, I was doing, um, I was heading up what they called the Mob Mix um, aspect of their business, which was um, all the services for, for Mixit. So coming up with, Um, text-based games and just creating opportunities for brands to reach that audience and it was a huge audience and then on the cerebral side that's where um, I started working as a mobile strategist but was really more for a community
0: designer. For those of us who might have forgotten uh, talk to me about the success and the explosion of Mixit and its demise.
1: So Mixit, when I got involved from a professional uh, perspective, was extremely huge. I don't remember how many millions of users they had at the time. But uh, it was for kids. If you went to Mixit, you almost didn't exist. So oh, by the time that uh, I saw that brands were getting involved, they were just tapping into these people who were obsessed on their phones uh, pretty much. And what was
0: it? I mean, it was a South African innovation. Yes,
1: it's a South African innovation, if, uh, I believe, from uh, Stellenbosch. And they were taking advantage of the mobile explosion, I guess. And I think part of their success was just being able to run on as many phones as they, they did at the time. So um, if you remember, some of the early messaging apps were very much um, geared towards the more fancy phones. Um So, Mixit
0: allowed what we would call dummy phones today uh, to be able to have the kind of um, ubiquitousness that we see. Through smartphones,
1: absolutely. So they were able uh, to do that. They were also, even content-wise, able to uh, to gear themselves towards that market. And they, they had uh, fantastic collaborations with organisations as well that allowed them to even do some uh, social work as well. I know with an organisation called Our Labs in Cape Town, they were able to provide services um, from a social perspective, such as um, I think counselling able to help people with uh, mathematics, for instance, or any of those kind of things uh, that they were able to do through a platform that was already quite ubiquitous, that was highly accessible to the audience.
0: But Mixit didn't last. In fact, it went from more than 7 million active users in 2013 to bust by 2015. I think there are several reasons. Some more controversial than others. But
1: I think the main reason is probably uh, not innovating fast enough. They had all these other competitors who were picking up, such as WhatsApp, that were starting to fulfill on the same need that uh, Mixed was. But they weren't able to go and uh, decide what the um, value proposition was in a space like that, that was innovating so quickly. So um, I think that's the main uh, issue. But when I'd spoken to some other people as well, they think that the management also presented... Um, issues with them in in terms of how they worked. So it's possibly a multifaceted.
0: But they also, you could argue, didn't see the explosion of smartphones. They also probably didn't anticipate uh, what data would become as opposed to the voice call, uh, such as, uh, you know, was the case when most people uh, didn't have smartphones.
1: Yes, uh, I think so. Even from a, a user interface perspective, there it looked very dated compared to some of the more um fancy messaging apps and when people was uh, starting to get used to something that looked very slick that looked very modern while theirs still seemed to be catering to the feature phone market
0: so what was your lesson there about people who are first out of the gate but perhaps lose their speed lose their momentum
1: I suppose it's that uh, comfort of being huge. Nokia went through this, um, BlackBerry went through it as well, and there's just this complacency when you're the top banana, I guess. And the lesson there is, um, how do you keep innovating even when you're at the top of your game?
0: That question, it's crucial for big successful companies and it it's pretty important for people at the top of their game too. Balissa's own answer was to strike out on her own. She left Cerebra at the end of 2011 and co-founded a company called Inquisition with a friend of hers
1: with inquisition what we'd wanted to do was become a design and research company but what had happened is that we were still known for uh, digital marketing uh, competency so we did uh, a little bit more of that but over time because we weren't really finding satisfaction in that kind of work we identified that we actually wanted to in simple terms to make people happy at work and we wanted to apply some of the the design competencies were built up over the years to to go and address
0: that. But again, you were turning human capital, that space on its head because you weren't just about placing people within organizations. You wanted to follow them throughout the entire experience of not only being placed, but also how they managed working in the organization and what their reasons would be for exiting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we we actually care about um, the actual lived experience in the workplace. Uh, How people feel about the work, how they know uh, how to work together and change the things that they feel need to be changed. So we started addressing that um, at team level. So we we don't necessarily... um, attempt to change whole organisations, but the the individuals in those teams, how do you get them to work uh, better together and how do you give them a methodology to be able to do that and give them agency over how um, they're able to function in those spaces.
0: So Inquisition evolves into another company called Better Work, looking at ways of harnessing the potential of multi-talented, multi-skilled employees. And Balisa is using a technique that she didn't learn during her science degree or her music studies, but picked up while creating cool experiences for mobile and social media users. It's called design thinking. And she's using it to help people feel and do better at work. The
1: really fantastic thing about uh, design thinking is that it gives people permission to use their creativity to start uh, tackling some of the problems that they have or to even just explore, which is not something that um, that organizations typically give uh, people an opportunity to go and do. And it gives them uh, a methodology that, uh, you know, I mean, it's taken from the creative walls, it's taken from the design walls so that they can follow step by step to go and help them do that, even though they themselves are not designers.
0: For someone who's never heard of design thinking, what is it?
1: Many ways to define it, but I, I think uh, the most straightforward way for us is um, that it's a, a process of uh, creative problem solving. And that's uh, it's quite broad, um, uh, quite a broad definition. And,
0: um, and I think rightly so, because there's so many ways to go and implement it. Design thinking is basically this process of innovating, testing and refining. And it can be applied to virtually any field. It's particularly useful in solving so-called wicked problems. Problems that are ill-defined and don't have an easy or obvious answer. It's also great when you need to empathize with an end user. It helps you understand what someone might want or need and how you can help them. And for Pallisa, it's been an invaluable tool. To help us understand how design thinking can help us in the world of work, we need to fast-forward a few decades from that boxy 1980s computer and its retro games. We're in the 21st century, we've got flat screens, and Digger is ancient history. A bar date is supposed to be two. But for one popular South African resort group it feels like its clientele hasn't changed with the times. Some of their guests just don't feel at home in their hotels and it's hard to pinpoint why. Everyone is welcomed courteously. The wait for the check-in isn't too long. The place looks great and those holiday vibes should already be kicking in. But some people, they feel out of place, almost as if they don't belong. Almost all of this group's customers are white and anyone who's not just doesn't feel comfortable.
1: So they basically had a single demographic coming through. But then what happens now? Because we've got um, all manner of people now who are interested in, um, in staying in the places, the beautiful places.
0: But no matter how friendly its staff, no matter how warm the welcome, some guests just don't want to stay. And the resort group is stuck. So we got their
1: team together, people who had known nothing about design thinking, who are not corporate at all, and we took them through this uh, creative um, methodology to go and um, get them to start thinking about what that um,
0: person's experience would be when they get to their resort. The thing is, even the smallest changes can have enormous ripple effects. Design thinking can help you identify things that might not seem crucial but really are. And once they're done properly, even the biggest of problems can be solved with changes as small as greeting guests in their own language instead of someone else's. The experiment that one of the groups
1: came up with was maybe we should start greeting people in African languages and uh, and also you know english uh, Afrikaans as well so from that experiment, what had happened, which really surprised them was um, unlike their assumption, people were not resistant, generally not resistant to hearing uh, another language. were they surprised yes, they were surprised um, but then also they were able to communicate that we are a new type of resort now that is uh, open to other people coming through. And then for, as a, a result of that as well, what they saw was that other people who came from um, the other cultural groups actually started to feel a lot more comfortable being there because now they were being
0: uh, acknowledged. So and simply by changing a greeting, just people feel welcome, word of mouth spreads, and boom,
1: Exactly. So again, it's a small action that can have uh, such a a radical change. And uh, from a customer service uh, point of view, that's very successful as a result.
0: With inquisition and better work, Balisa is helping transform businesses from the inside out using the tiniest of nudges to prompt profound organisational change. She's encouraging people to think outside of the silos they work in, to collaborate with colleagues they don't even know. But at the same time, she's getting frustrated. There's more she wants to do. Increasingly, she wants to focus on hardware instead of software. But no one seems to believe that she and her company can. So what's a tech-savvy entrepreneur to do when she hits a wall? She co-founds another company, of course.
1: A Signal, we created because we saw that as one entity well, with Inquisition, that um, people were not able to understand why a company that did X was also able to do something else uh, in technology. There was just no um, understanding of that or how that could happen. So we had to break off and create a technology company called Signal. And with Signal, from the get-go, we decided that we wanted to be hardware-focused, so that lots of people are making apps and all sorts of other software. But we wanted something um, that was tangible, that uh, people could actually interact with in the physical
0: world. And this is the idea of X being allowed and encouraged to be Y. It's central to this new world of work we're all facing, being dubbed the Fourth Industrial Revolution. It's a world in which people and businesses can and must be more than just one thing. In a world in which people don't work set hours or in single departments or even in formal office spaces. A world in which people spontaneously collaborate and innovate. The strict reporting lines become outdated and irrelevant.
1: There are all these rules that no longer make sense, certainly not in the current environment, one of them being hierarchy. Uh, Why is that other person not accessible to me? And there is no um, good reason for that at all. And um, I think also uh, processes as well tend to make people slower than what they would need to be. Or sometimes don't allow them to be as slow as they need to be because, I mean, both can be uh, beneficial or harmful. And, um, yeah, so I I just think some of the thinking from... Um, Yesterday, I think you mentioned the industrial era, uh, actually harming people from being able to to work
0: in very uh, flexible ways that are required of today's work environment. But the problem in a world in which everything seems possible is that it can be hard to focus. The temptation is to try to be all things to all people, but that can leave people feeling overwhelmed or confused.
1: I think it's quite normal um, for them to feel that way. I I believe that we're in a flux right now before anything plateaus and we can have the nice uh, maybe situation we had in the 80s where things were quite predictable. Um, There is definitely going to be um, a place where things are still being um, structured, I guess. Um, Right now, we're still in the questioning phase and trying out phase. And... um, you can feel that way. It's perfectly fine. But um, I think also don't try to take hold of everything. Like We've just decided on which areas we want to focus on, and then we're happy to navigate those uh, those paths. But uh, it is confusing, uh, uh, I'll admit to that.
0: One of palisa's main aims in the strange, sometimes confusing new world of ours is to make sure the next generation of girls like her feels at home. When she's not helping reinvent the world of work, she runs a non-profit initiative called Girls Invent Tomorrow, empowering, educating and mentoring girls about opportunities in science and tech. And Balisa is doing this because she's worried that we're already lagging behind in South Africa, even before the fourth industrial revolution has properly begun.
1: We are definitely left behind. So one of the the things that um, I've been working on through Girls Invent Tomorrow and uh, through one of our partners as well, GFEA, is doing these um, coding and robotics workshops. And the, the kids, they are absolutely bright, but they have definitely been shortchanged in terms of... Um, building their numeracy and maybe even literacy skills. So in that way, we're behind. But in terms of the kids themselves, they are actually quite fantastic.
0: You mentioned Girls Invent Tomorrow. Why is it important for you, for girls, to be encouraged uh, to participate in STEM careers?
1: There is a shortage of women in these spaces. And with an increasingly um, technology-based world, we cannot have the influence only coming from one set or one half of the world. We actually needed to, um, you know, to cover as many perspectives as possible. So diversity and inclusion is absolutely important, I believe, in, in technology and the sciences. So from that perspective. Um, Um, It's absolutely crucial. But also, um, I just think these careers present very, very exciting uh, career paths. And why should that also be left to only some people and not others? We see in our workshops as well just how uh, excited the the kids get when, you know, when you give them a new way of thinking or looking at things.
0: Girls Invent Tomorrow ostensibly focuses on the so-called STEM disciplines, science, technology, engineering, and maths. But because of Balissa's background in the arts and the love she has for music and theatre, the work she's doing actually feeds into an updated version of STEM, one that's quickly gaining traction in scientific circles around the world. It's called STEAM, science, tech, engineering, arts, and math. The main difference between STEM and STEAM is that STEM focuses only on scientific concepts. STEAM investigates the same concepts, but it uses inquiry and problem-based learning methods generally associated with the creative process. Stuff like design thinking, for instance. For Balisa, it's important not to lose sight of who she's designing for, to make sure that the tech she's developing is human-centered, to keep people at the core of problem-solving.
1: I think a lot of the time, especially with uh, technology or technical um, uh, professions, the humanity aspect tends to be stripped away. And now I'm able to marry those two things. Uh, It's not either or. As human beings, we can never really separate ourselves from that.
0: And it's this drive Balisa has to keep in touch with the creative, arty side even when she's working in the world of robotics, coding and tech, that makes her stand out. It's what's going to set her and others like her apart in a rapidly changing world. And it's what's going to keep her relevant for decades to come. One of the
1: greatest gifts I've ever received in my life is um, a love for music and a love for the arts. It's been incredibly enriching to my life experience because I don't just um, see um, art and just uh, consume it uh, at a, let say, superficial level. I'm able to engage with it and it m- many times it's been able to uh, change my perspective or just help me to contemplate things uh,
0: uh, deeply. You've been listening to The Professional, a podcast from ProfMed about how successful South Africans are helping to redefine work and life in the 21st century.